time we're going to invite up not only our worship leader for tonight, but our speaker, Pastor John Newfeld, is going to come up and deliver the word for us tonight. Let's welcome him up. Come on. Amen. God is good. You guys believe that? that God, God is good? In everything he does, God is good. And that's, that's essentially what I want and what I feel called to speak forth tonight is, is the goodness of God. And as I do that, I'm just going to pray briefly. I'm going to jump into the word tonight. Father, we thank you that you call us into your goodness, God, in all of its varied forms. You call us into your goodness because you are good. All that you do is good. We give thanks to you, our God and King, for your love endures forever. You are good in all you do. So awaken our hearts completely right now as the word goes forth that would find fertile soil in every heart. Every single heart. We thank you, God. We praise you. We love you. We set our hearts, our minds, our eyes on you. We ask these things and declare them all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. There's a story in Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace? How many of you guys have read that book? What's So Amazing About Grace? I read that in college and it it challenged me more than almost any other book I read for where I was. <laughs> yeah, you can give John hands. John gets real good at that. Okay, yeah, it's a story. Uh, there's a story in that book early on where uh, Yancey is talking about C.S. Lewis. And the story goes something like this, that during the lifetime of C.S. Lewis, there was a gathering of church leaders in England. And, and what they were gathering and discussing was the distinctive aspects of Christianity and what Christianity as a religion contributes among the, real, uh, the religions of the world. And so these, these Christian leaders, my understanding is, were debating back and forth, what is it that makes Christianity different from every, uh, every other religion? Some people suggested, you know, Jesus resurrected from the dead. So resurrection from the dead is the distinctive aspect of Christianity but there actually are religions who claim that that's happened for them. Someone else suggested that the distinctive aspect of, of Christianity is that God, a divine being, became man. But that was shot down as well because there are religions in which divine beings incarnate and become men. And so there was all this confusion surrounding what really was distinctive about Christianity. 
And the story goes that C.S. Lewis walked in the room and asked, well, what's, what's all the commotion about? And they told him their situation. And he just looked at them and said, well, that's easy. The distinctive aspect of Christianity is simply grace. That beyond anything else, what sets apart our faith from every other faith or religion in the world is grace because no other religion has a concept truly of grace. Every other religion has something to do with earning something through merit, earning something through discipline, earning something through works. But Christianity is all about this, this crazy notion that we have what we have freely given as a gift from God. That everything we have is a gift. We did nothing to earn it. And beloved, God intends to mark us as a people in every way of grace. When the world looks at us, they should see grace every time. So we're going to spend some time talking about grace. But grace has so many different facets there are so many different aspects of grace. I'm going to look at three that I feel are primary aspects of grace to drive home what God intends for us to look like as his people, reflecting his grace and his goodness. So we're just going to jump in. The first aspect I want to focus on tonight of God's grace is that grace covers up mistakes, Right? When you make mistakes, God always has grace to deal with those mistakes because God knows that we make a lot of mistakes. Do you guys make a lot of mistakes? I make a lot of mistakes. And God is so set on, on turning those all around for good, right? Every mistake we make he intends to work good in and through that for us and for his kingdom and for his glory because he is a God of grace and there is nothing more glorious than grace in its fullness. I just find it really interesting that the Bible is filled with stories of failure. Do you guys ever catch that? That throughout the Bible, you see failure after failure after failure after failure. You got Adam and Eve, failure. Cain, failure. I mean, not, not entirely. That's not their whole life. But that's, that's what you see as part of their story. You see Abraham, you see failure. You see Isaac, you see failure. Jacob, failure. Joseph, not that much. He's Joseph. <laughs> I'm sure he failed too. Uh, you see Moses, you see failure, right? For all, all the, the glory that's there, all of, all of the incredible things that were accomplished by these great men of faith, there's also significant failure that is exposed in their lives. And you get to the New Testament, it's the same thing. You see Peter, big failure, you know, denying Jesus. The disciples all abandoning Jesus, failure. And it makes you wonder, why did people write stories about failure, you know? Like, when the gospel writers wrote 
Like when Matthew, when Matthew wrote, Matthew writes about how the disciples all abandoned Jesus at his greatest point of need. It would have been very easy for Matthew to just, you know, steer away from that and smooth that over and make, because he was one of the disciples, he was writing about himself. And he was, you know, he could have, you know, given Peter a break, you know, and not written about Peter denying Christ. But he was really real with it, you know? And he was just like, we messed up. And I'm going to write about it so everyone can read. You look at Moses. Moses is generally agreed upon in evangelical circles that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And that's what we believe here at New Philly, that, that, that Moses wrote those five books. Moses wrote about himself. It's like an autobiography, right? So when we read in Exodus, the first few chapters about, you know, the burning bush and Moses sounding really scared and like a little boy and wanting to run away and really complaining and whining a lot before the Lord, he was writing all that about himself. It would have been very easy for him to just not go there. You know, there's so, we got so much else to write about. You know, we want to let the world know about so many other things. We want to pass that down from generation to generation. What did he write about? His failures. You know, when he struck the rock, instead of speaking to it as the Lord commanded him to for water to come out, and God, at that point, God said, because you did that, you're not going to enter the promised land. He didn't need to write about that, at least in his flesh, but he did. And who's overseeing all of this writing process is no one other than the Holy Spirit who is saying, even if you don't feel like writing that, you're going to write it because you're inspired by me, right? When the Bible was written, it was written filled with the stories of failures of people. And it says later in Romans that all of that was written for our encouragement, right? It was written for our benefit because the Lord knows that we make mistakes and the Lord loves showing mercy and grace. He loves it. And so grace is there to cover those things up. I, Grace is an important lesson for us to learn, often for ourselves. Some, for some people more than others, but we all need to learn to deal with our mistakes in the light of God's grace. I have a hard time with that, if I can confess that tonight, that, that I have a hard time receiving the grace of the Lord in that way. I am, uh, although I'm phlegmatic, in, in Strength Finders, I, I discovered that one of my strengths is the strength of responsibility. And it's very high up there. And one of the, the potential negative sides of responsibility is that you take everything on yourself and you're your own worst critic and, and you just have a hard time receiving the grace that God des- desires to extend to you. But it's a lesson that God continues to teach me. I learned it, I've been learning it mostly over the past couple of years through my relationship with my wife. Anita, it's when I got into a dating relationship, I started dating Pastor Anita. I, I was new to it. Essentially, I'd been in one relationship years ago. 
but beyond that, I was, I was new to relationships and I found myself making all sorts of mistakes. Mistake after mistake. I said the wrong thing. I did the wrong thing. I was insensitive there. I messed that up. I forgot that. You know, I said that the wrong way. I'm stupid. Oh, I can't. You know, like I, I would feel, I'd feel really bad. And I, I was living with Pastor Marcus at the time. And I, w- I would come home. And I, I'd often come home feeling like, I guess, visibly, like, disappointed, discouraged, or whatever. And I'd talk through with Pastor Marcus. You know, Pastor Marcus has a lot of wisdom. Can I, like, a, a lot, he's got a lot of wisdom in, in the realm of relationships. You know? Yeah, you know? <laughs> And, and so, so this is Marcus's great, his greatest advice to me during this time was simply this, John, show yourself grace, show yourself grace. It's okay. John, you got to show yourself grace. Pastor Jam was the same way. And we'd meet for accountability and be like, ah, don't worry about it. There's grace. There's grace. You know, it's, it's okay. You know, and I had to learn to receive that. And there are those of us here who need to learn to receive the grace of the Lord in that way. When you make mistakes, God isn't looking down on you with this angry scowl on his face, looking to beat you, you know. He's so for you. He's so for you in every way. For the mistakes you make, God longs to pour out his grace over all of them. The first aspect of grace that I want to focus on tonight is grace that covers over our mistakes. The second aspect I want to touch on tonight is that grace comes to us in the form of gifts. Do you guys like gifts? Yeah. God loves to give gifts to his children. You believe it? Like he really does. He loves to pour out. And and we, the thing is, we don't always realize when God is gifting us and gracing us. We miss a lot of it. If we're not seeing things in the spirit, we miss it. But God is so bent on blessing his people. You know, what's really been driving it home for me lately is, is working through the book of Genesis with you all, as, as Pastor Marcus and Pastor Anita and myself, as we write the material for the Bible studies that you guys are, are going through in small groups, you just see bless, you see God's heart bent on blessing his people. And this past week, looking at Abram and the call of Abraham, and, and God blessing him that he would be a blessing. Through the mistakes that people are making throughout the Bible, God continues to turn that mistake around and bless them. Turn that mistake around, bless them. Turn that mistake around, bless them. Because God intends for people to see blessing when they look at his people. God is set on it. You know what what strikes me more than any other passage of scripture regarding this is, is Genesis 15. I'll ask you to turn there with me. Turn to Genesis 15. This could almost be seen as, as like part two of the Bible study from this week. Was it a good study? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Genesis 15. 
And because it's so good, we're going to read through the whole chapter. It's just, it's just 21 verses. Uh, let's go back and forth. I'm going to read odd numbers. You all together read even numbers and really receive it as we go through. Don't just read it, receive it. Okay. In the ESV, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a, and a member of my household will be my heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. He said to them, to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hit, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Okay, that might seem a little bit bizarre. What happens there between Abram and the Lord? Uh, but I'm going to explain it to us because there's so much goodness in this passage for us to receive tonight. Now, God had told Abram in, in Genesis 12, right? He said, I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing to all nations. And in Genesis 15, he focuses really on the land. But in general, he's talking about the blessings that he's going to give to Abraham. And so God has already spoken it forth. God has already said, Abram, I'm going to do this. But just so Abraham gets it, God uses... A, a, uh, a picture of that time. Uh, um, he uses a, a way of, of 
passing land from people, from one person to another, a way of making covenants and agreements between two parties on earth, between humans, to drive home what he's about to promise to Abraham. And so what would happen in that time, if you wanted to make a covenant with some other human party, you would take animals and you would cut them in half. And then you would, you would put them side by side so that there is space between the two halves of each animal. So that they're facing each other. Okay, It's kind of a, a grotesque picture. But this is what they would do. And that's part of the point, actually, that it is grotesque. So you've got these, like, half an animal here, half an animal here, half an animal here, half an animal here, and however many animals you use to make this covenant. Okay? And you would get the two parties. They would both walk through the cut pieces of animal as a symbol of the agreement they were making. And what they were saying by that was this. So shall it be to me if I break this covenant. Look at these animals over here. That's going to be me. I receive that for myself if I break this covenant. That's pretty scary. Like when they made agreements, it, was, it wasn't just like a lighthearted thing. It was like, we're for real about this. We're serious, right? What's interesting is that God, after these pieces of animals are cut, God himself passes through the cut animals. Do you realize the implications of that? Do you realize what God is saying? God is saying, uh, it, it, sounds, it sounds heretical to even say it. I, I, I hate to even utter the words, but this is what he's saying, you know. So shall it be to me if I break this covenant. What's happened to these animals here, let that happen to me if I ever break this covenant with you, Abraham. God said that. Here's the other profound part of it, which really gets me, is that you'll notice that only one party went through those cut pieces of animals. You know what happened to Abraham? He went to sleep. God puts Abraham to sleep. Abraham has his vision. And this smoking fire pot and this torch pass through, symbolizing the presence of God. It's the presence of God himself passing through by himself. Who doesn't go through? Abraham. God's saying, I'm not even going to let you go through. Because I know that you can't keep this covenant perfectly. So I'm not even going to let you. He's saying, Abraham... You can't do one thing. There is nothing you can do to change my mind about this. There is no failure too great in your life that is going to change my mind about this. I'm making it permanent. Because God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. And that's how God sees the Israelites now as we pray for them, you know? God is bent on blessing his people. He's bent on showing grace to his people. All these things. Abraham didn't deserve one thing, right? Abraham is there, sitting around one day, and God chooses him. Why? Because God chose him. 
That's the only answer that we have. Abraham didn't ask for it. He wasn't looking for it. God just chose him and said, I'm going to bless you. I don't care if you don't want me to bless you. I'm just going to do it. I don't care if you don't want me to show you grace. I'm going to pour out grace on you because I've chosen to do it. That's how God sees us. We are children of Abraham. We receive all of that. God is pouring out his grace, his gifts on you all the time. You just need eyes to see it. When I see my life in the spirit, when I'm looking at my life, all I really see is blessing. I see grace. I see favor. I see an incredible wife who the Lord has given me. I don't deserve that. I see an incredible apartment that Pastor Nita and myself get to live in. I don't deserve that. I didn't earn it, you know? I look at all, like, around my life, I, I look at th- this guitar. That's a really nice guitar, by the way. <laughs> Do you know, I, I didn't pay anything for it. I look at my life, when I see my life in the Spirit, I see grace after grace after grace, because God loves to give his children gifts. And the gifts take various forms. Here's a great gift that we don't often see as a gift. Are you ready for it? The gift of discipline. Yeah, because you know, here's, here's the thing. Generally, we think about grace and discipline. And we see them as opposite ends of a spectrum, right? Like grace is over there and discipline's over there. And I can receive, in any given situation, I can receive either grace or I can receive discipline. Right? Like, if you, you know, uh, say you teach a really, uh, teach a class really poorly, you didn't prepare well, you're a teacher, and, and your supervisor shows up, and you know you didn't prepare well for the class, and, and you, got, you got found out by your supervisor. Now, that supervisor can either give me discipline or grace, right? Discipline or grace. I'm hoping grace because I don't want discipline because it doesn't feel good. You know, when you show up to small group and you haven't done, you know, you haven't listened to the podcast, you know, I hope that never happens to you. Uh, but you didn't do the homework and you, and you tell your small group leader and you're thinking I could either receive discipline or I can receive grace. What's it going to be a small group leader? Please show me grace. You know, But the thing is that we need to understand that discipline is grace. Do you know who doesn't receive discipline? You know who doesn't receive discipline? Is an orphan. You'll see it every time. Like if you meet a child who grew up in a broken home, grew up without parents or whatever it might be, you will see consistently a lack of discipline in that person's life. When I, a number of years ago, living in Canada, I, uh, I was ministering in the inner city of Winnipeg, uh, my hometown. And Winnipeg is, they call it like the Detroit of Canada, like really high crime rates. And the inner city is not a fun place. And you have all of these kids who grow up without, either without parents or parents who are absent or parents who are, 
you know, crack addicts or parents who are alcoholics or whatever it might be. And you minister to these kids, you find out very quickly that discipline is a foreign concept to them. They've just never experienced it. They don't know what to do with it. But you grow up in a loving home with parents who truly care for you, and you're going to get disciplined. I tell you, I grew up with discipline. My, my dad is still the most disciplined man that I know, so I have that exemplified for me. And he also had no problem disciplining his children. And he did it out of love. I grew up with that. I grew up playing hockey where coaches would constantly preach discipline, discipline, discipline. You know, I had a coach. I'm sure that was his favorite word. He said it all the time. Discipline, boys, discipline. Because the guys that I play with like to you know, fight and do things that would, you know, detriment the team. But, uh, but I grew up with discipline and I'm so grateful for it. It's a gift, When Pastor Christian comes up here and rebukes you, that is a gift. The most unloving thing that a leader can do is see something happen that's not in alignment with his heart and just let it slide. That's the most unloving thing a leader can do. And so you receive that as grace. We don't actually really deserve it. It's an undeserved gift to better us, to raise us up into the destiny that God has for us. God loves to gift his children and his grace takes the form of those gifts. That's the second aspect of grace that I want to talk about tonight. The third is that grace enables us to go beyond our natural ability. Most of us, when we think of grace, particularly in in regard to the Bible, we think of grace as, you know, God's gift to us towards salvation. I remember we actually did a, um, an exercise on this in seminary, I believe in our first year, uh, where the professor, uh, he asked us to think about all the passages that we could that refer to grace. The number one passage that I believe every student came up with was Ephesians 2, right? And, and many of you know here, many of you have it memorized. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works that no man may boast. Grace is is a gift unto salvation. We receive grace at that time. Grace gives us that certainty of our inheritance in heaven. And that's about all grace does. The Western church really emphasizes that. You really get that a lot. Grace is for salvation. But when you actually study grace in the Bible, by far, the most common usage of the word grace is in regard to the power of God, the the gifting of God in power. This is the emphasis, particularly of the New Testament writers. They want us to understand that grace is available to us. Paul Paul introduces these books, a number of them, his, his letters, and says, grace and peace to you. He's saying, power unto you from on high. That's what he's saying. He's saying supernatural ability to you from on high. I'm just going to highlight a few passages of Scripture, the New Testament, that they really drive this home. Acts 4.33, 
says this, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. In the early church, it wasn't like great salvation was on them all. Great grace, great power, great ability. Acts 6, 8, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. The grace of God was enabling Stephen to perform signs and wonders. That's what grace looked like in his life. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. This is the Apostle Paul saying, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. God is equating, or uh, Paul is equating grace and power. He's basically saying they're the same thing. The grace of God. 2 Timothy 2, 1. Paul says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we need help, God says there is grace available to you. 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. When we say that God wants his people marked by grace, what we're really saying in addition to everything else and beyond actually everything else is that God wants his people marked by ability that goes beyond their natural ability. This is how John Bevere defines grace this way. He says, grace is God's free empowerment that gives us the ability to go beyond our natural ability. I'll say that again. I think this is a great definition. God's free empowerment that gives us the ability to go beyond our natural ability. God wants your life so marked by grace that you are able to do what you couldn't even think of doing in your flesh. His grace is rising upon us in this hour. His grace is rising. Jesus says in John 15 that apart from him, apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. It's interesting to think about that. Like, what is that? I can do all sorts of things. The, you know, the world is doing all sorts of things apart from Jesus. What do you mean, Jesus, apart from me? You can do nothing. We're saying, actually, that, that's, that's what I mean. That if in the scope of eternity, when you look at what's really accomplished, you can't do anything of any true significance or value apart from me. Apart from my grace operant in your life. You actually can't do anything. God has his heart set on leading us into situations where we need his grace. He is, because we go through these, these times where we, we really need God's grace. I, mean, I, I refer to it often, but I think, I mean, the past three years for, uh, for myself has been a, a time when I have 
had more to do than I was physically able to do, but was able to accomplish it by the grace of God. God wants us to be in places where we need him. And the thing is, it's not just, we, we tend to think of these things in seasons, right? Like I, I have this, like this busy season right now, but someday that's going to end and I'm going to just rest for a while and it's going to be a different season. So I'm just going to hold on to this season, hold on in this season until I get to that place where I'm just going to rest, you know, and it's going to be a different season. But we need to understand that God will never lead us into a season where we don't utterly and completely need him. God loves us far too much to lead us into a place where we don't need his grace. And it's rising upon us in this hour. He wants to mark us so completely by grace because this is the thing that you will find when you get into your places of work, when you get into your places of, of wherever you are in the world, outside of this you know, church context, you're going to find that the world thirsts for grace more than anything else. Because the world has not experienced grace. Grace is God's idea. Grace is God's construction. Outside of God, there is no grace. I mean, God, people experience the grace of God every day, whether they believe in God or not. But they don't truly taste it. And for us being salty Christians, that largely has to do with us being people of grace, people marked by grace, people walking in the grace of God to not only to cover our mistakes, not only to receive the gifts of the Lord, but to walk in supernatural power and authority and wisdom and understanding. The grace of the Lord rises upon us. We're going to take some time to pray right now and receive this. Father, we thank you for your grace, Lord, that you lavish on us day by day by day. You lavish grace upon grace upon grace. We ask right now for eyes, God, to see the grace that you are pouring out on us as your people. We want to see how good you are. Because we know, Lord, that when the world sees us, your desire for how they see us is to be a people fully marked by grace, not earning things in the flesh, not striving for things, but a people marked completely by your goodness just because you are good.
I feel that there are people here who need an awakening to the grace of God and to receive his grace. I feel the word of the Lord tonight for us is submit to my grace. Submit to my goodness. If you are here tonight and you have a hard time receiving the grace of God, you're hard on yourself, you try to earn everything you have, you try to deserve everything you have, and you just have a hard time receiving the free gift of grace that God desires to give you, then I want you to stand to your feet and I feel the Lord is just going to minister to you tonight. Now, the Lord is saying, stop trying to earn approval. Stop trying to earn my approval and receive my goodness. Submit to it. It can be a foreign concept for us to submit to something that's good, but it's so difficult for us so often. Lord, I pray that you would breathe afresh the truth of your grace, your unmerited favor, your free gift in every heart that's standing here tonight, God. Breathe afresh. Don't earn it. Don't strive for it. Just receive it because God longs to be glorified in it and through it. God doesn't want a people who are marked by earning things who are marked by striving for things, who are marked by doing the right thing all the time. He wants his people marked by simply his grace in all of its forms, in all of its sides, in all of its varieties. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Mm. Yeah, Jesus. Just receive it. Receive it. Receive it. Grace is going deeper. Grace is going deeper. You can't earn it. You can't earn it. And as you breathe it, he's releasing peace. He's releasing joy because you can't do anything for it. You can't do anything. It's just God giving it to you. God's just giving it to you because he's good, because you belong to him. You belong to him. You are his children. And he's giving you everything good. And he's saying, I'm giving it to you. 
Stop trying to reach for it. I'm giving it to you. I'm giving it to you. You can't do one thing that's going to make me change my mind about you. I've already walked through that covenant procession. I've already done that for you. I've already stamped my commitment on you. I love you. I love you. I love you. You are my favored one. Not because of anything you've done. Simply because I'm good. And I love pouring out my goodness. I love it. I love it. I love pouring out my goodness.